chapter 18, verses 28 through 32. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early, and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Therefore Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. So Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, We are not permitted to put anyone to death, to fulfill the word of Jesus, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. A blogger starts out her story about an incident at her church that she had attended for quite some time. She begins with this statement, my church didn't intentionally try to hurt me. Indirectly, she says, we were shamed by well-intentioned, caring people. She said, I remember many people coming up to me as a little girl after their father had left their mother and them as well. And asking me, do you miss your daddy? A fair question, she said, but not an empathetic one. Of course I missed him. However, their concern was wrapped around a carefully constructed list of do's that my family, by its very nature at that time, could not uphold. They didn't offer me grace. Instead, they gawked at me like I was an exotic exhibit. Their family didn't go through that kind of pain. Their family was sin-free. No one shared their stories. I know now that their stories were buried deep in closets. However, in our church, there was no room for honest transparency and admitted brokenness. So we grieved, and we grieved alone, in silence, with great shame, and nobody to help. If I were to ask you a question, what is the greatest threat to the Christian church? You don't have to say it out loud, but what would your answer be? What is the first thing that comes to your mind? Is it atheism? Is it some form of New Age Gnosticism? Is it political activism? Is it materialism? According to Paul David Tripp, he says it is absolutely none of those things. He says the greatest threat to the Christian church is none other than moralism. Moralism, legalism, Self-righteousness, any righteousness that is found on anything else other than the person and work 
of Jesus Christ, that's the greatest threat to Christianity, and I would agree with him. Because moralism is like a disease. It actually sometimes is welcomed into a church, can sneak into a church. People maybe begin with the right intentions. They think that they are actually serving God, and in the end, you have what? Hurt people just like this girl and her family. It is absolutely destructive to the person who adheres to this type of teaching and doctrine and lifestyle, and it is destructive to those who are around them. And if not weeded out in the church, if not dealt with immediately, it will kill a fellowship. Moralism is another gospel. We're going to look at this disease today. We're going to look at two symptoms that we see that come out in this text And then we're going to look at moralism's ultimate cure. So the first symptom is we legalistically, or by the law, or some sort of rule and regulation, we legalistically justify or make ourselves acceptable to God. So we justify ourselves. Look at what happens in verse 28. So Jesus is now being taken... From the trial before the, 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 the priests, and now he's being taken to be handed over to Pilate. And for a very, very specific reason that we're going to see at the end. So in 28, they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early, and they themselves did not enter. Why didn't they enter? Because they did not want to be defiled, but they might eat the Passover. This passage is filled with irony, and it begins right from the beginning. This is Beatrice Fidiuk. Beatrice Fidiuk passed away February 12, 2022. However, before she passed away, she wrote her own obituary. Good idea, right? You know, I'm going to write some things down maybe right now. Mark is remembered for just list all these wonderful things, right? She wrote her own obituary, but guess what? Her obituary was not the standard obituary. Do you know what it was? It was a resume. That's right. It was a resume for heaven, for her acceptance into heaven. So when she finally passed at the age of 94... The Winnipeg Free Press printed the resume in its entirety, and it starts out like this. Dear Lord, please accept my application for eternal life. My resume is as follows. And she divided up her obituary into sections like a real resume. Objectives, references, training, experience, volunteer work, and even hobbies. Beatrice gave a summary of her life story, saying that she was born on October 22, 1927, to loving parents, Eugenie and Alfred. She says, I have left my daughter, Michelle, her husband, Perry, my granddaughter, Kali, and many nieces and nephews on earth because there are no openings for heaven in, for the, uh, in heaven for them just yet. And then she began to share her memories with the Lord, as you would in a resume. Lord, and I'm going to start doing check, checks, so I'm adding the checks. Lord, you know that as a teacher, check. I never had any teacher's pets, check. Rather, I put my heart, check, 
into teaching those with learning challenges, check, or people in difficult family situations, check. It was here that I feel I did my best work, check. I also continued volunteer work, check. Knitting scarves for underprivileged children, check. Summing up her CV, she added, Lord, I hope that you will find that I have met my objectives and that I deserve a place in your heavenly home. You know where to find me if you want to discuss my further qualifications. So, I don't know how to respond to that, but at least she is bold enough to write it out when many of us keep an ongoing resume in our own heads, don't we? Moralism is a belief or a system of belief that says, we are qualified, Lord. You need to accept me, Lord. Lord, you need to bless me because look at what I have done. Look at what I am doing. Look at me. I'm qualified. Therefore, Lord, you owe me something. It is exactly what these guys are doing in our passage today. They believe that they can participate in God's economy because of certain ritualistic outward fulfilling laws that they are following and they are doing it as they hand over the Son of God Himself to be killed. It's unsure what law that they are following. It could, it, it could be something from the Mishnah or it could be uh, derived from one of the laws in Leviticus or, number, or Numbers, but the, the Mishnah is the Jewish commentary on the Torah. It's expanded. It is the, the man-made interpretation of those laws and how to follow them. It consists of 613 laws that are derived from the Torah. And these laws are man-made interpretations of the Old Testament laws, but either way, whatever it was, they could not enter into the residence of a Gentile, because if they did, they would be defiled. Now, some of that defilement could have been taken away by a ritualistic bath. So if you were defiled, you can go ahead and take a ritualistic bath, and then you're all set, you're all good to go. However, it seems like this defilement would have lasted longer than just a day period because they weren't going to be able to participate in the Passover, so they couldn't take it back. So it was something that required a seven-day period of cleansing. And here they are trying to follow this law and thinking that they are pure while they are defiling themselves even greater. This is the danger of moralism. Moralism is all about regulations. It is not about a relationship. Moralism is not about love. It is about following law. And Paul is constantly warning us, especially in the book of Galatians, that we are not to fall into this system of belief. 
the Galatians began by the Spirit, but they are continuing, continuing by what? By the law. And the same thing can happen in our Christian churches today. It is a self-righteousness based on works, and it hides our true need. And guess what? It looks good on the outside, doesn't it? Lord, look at me. I've gone to church today, Lord. Or Lord, you can't blame me for not going to church last Sunday. That's Pastor Kevin and Pastor Mark's fault. Lord, don't hold that one against me. Lord, Lord, do you see how much I'm reading my Bible, Lord? Lord, did you see? I, Lord, I prayed for an hour today, Lord. You got you to have something in it for me, right? You think you, you start out the day, right? And you say your prayers and you read your Bible and you're like, today's going to be a great day. Lord, look at all the ministries that I'm involved with, Lord. Look at how active I am in the church, Lord. Lord, look at how much money I'm giving. Lord, look at, Lord, look at, Lord, look at me. I'm qualified, Lord. Moralism follows a set of rules, and obedience to those rules is what makes the individual worthy, pure, and able to receive God's blessing. It begins with following the law, capital L, and it moves on to little l's. Little laws that we make up in our own minds. And when we break those laws, we feel like we've sinned against God. Our purity is derived from keeping these laws. And moralism's true danger is that it keeps us from seeing the true nature of ourselves and it keeps others from seeing our true nature as well. We look good on the outside. But inside, like Jesus says to the Pharisees, we're full of what? Sin and death and wickedness. Moralism doesn't address our true need of forgiveness. And moralism actually is fighting against God's system of grace. Folks, Why we obey is just as important as obeying itself. And if you obey God out of some legalistic self-justification, that needs to stop. If you're obeying His law not out of love and gratefulness and a relationship and knowing that you don't want to break your fellowship with Him, if you're obeying Him to earn some sort of favor before Him. That is not Christianity. That is another gospel. And it is an extremely dangerous and sneaky one. It sneaks into a fellowship. These guys thought they were serving God when they're putting His Son to death. That's how blinding this can be. Churches start out and they think that they're serving God, and they want people to live a holy life, which is good. That's what God wants from us. But then it turns into this self-justification, hateful type of system, and it kills a church. 
It's a facade. And just like he says to the Pharisees, all we're doing is adding more paint to our tombs. Read my Bible, little, little bit of paint. Said my prayers, little bit of paint. Helped an old lady across the street, a lot of paint on that one. Didn't say anything to my mother-in-law, just throw the whole paint can on there. <laughs> That's all we do. When inside, it's not being dealt with. God is after our hearts. And guess what? God can see through all your paint. He can see through every bit of it. He knows what's going on in your hearts. He knows what's going on in your minds. He knows our secret sins. He knows our public sins. It's unbelievable that they got to this point, isn't it? They're so blinded by their own self-righteousness that they are willing to condemn the only one who is truly undefiled. I had a newsflash for us all. Apart from the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ, you and I are all defiled. We're born sinners. There's no amount of ritual bathing that can take that away. None whatsoever. And please don't come to this church or any church thinking that. Here they are wanting to celebrate what? The Passover as they hand over the Passover lamb that they truly needed. But as long as they are keeping God's rules, it's okay. Moralism becomes a substitute for the gospel. We neglect the true Passover lamb and rely on our own works. We create our own resumes. And we believe that God should accept us, especially because, well, we're so much better than others. Which brings us to our next point. We unjustly condemn or judge others. So two effects, if you see it happening, two symptoms, how we view ourselves and how we view others. I'm good, you're not. I deserve God's acceptance, you deserve God's judgment. Read verse 29 and 30. Therefore Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and they said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him over to you. Let me ask you something. Are you quick to shame? Are you quick to judge? Are you quick to condemn? Well, if you are, you're like a lot of people these days. NPR article reports that Jonah Leher, who was once a a popular science writer, fabricated some quotes that he made about Bob Dylan. 
And then this other guy, Mike Daisy, lied about what he saw during his visits to Chinese factories that make Apple products. So what was the response from the, the online masses? Well, the online herd passed swift and decisive judgment on these transgressors. They became victims of what journalist John Ronson calls a new form of public shaming, 21st century style. Ronson's new book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, exposes our society's newfound glee in tearing others apart after they sin or they fall. True, nobody is physically harmed in these internet floggings, he calls them, but the damage to one's reputation can be much more severe. Ronson says what happens to the shamers and those being shamed, it says, he says it destroys souls, brutalizing everyone, the onlookers included. Moralism needs evildoers because when we point out the faults in others, who looks better? We do. Notice what they call Jesus. They actually say that he is socially reprehensible. That's what this word evildoer means. I'm righteous, you're socially reprehensible. Therefore, you deserve what God is going to give you. Are you quick to condemn others? When people fall or when people sin, do you kind of get a little bit excited? Okay, did you? And you, maybe you guise it in a conversation that is, you know, appropriate, you think is appropriate. Yeah, did you, it's such a shame of what happened to so-and-so. Did you hear about? Oh, yeah, that's terrible. Yeah, but my family, we're great. You should see us. What do you think about when people fall, when people sin? Two main dangers of moralism are seen in this section having to do with our judgment. Actually, three, three judgment areas. We, we judge the way that God deals with us incorrectly. We judge ourselves incorrectly, and we judge others incorrectly, unjustly. And we condemn others. Instead of having compassion on people, instead of having mercy and grace on people, we offer them condemnation. And we do it in the church, and we do it with the outside world, and that's not the gospel. We begin in the church by comparing ourselves with each other. We look down upon those who maybe don't attend church as much as we do, maybe aren't involved as much as we do, and I'm just as guilty. And then we take it to the outside. And Lord, we, we call down God's judgment upon them. Now, I'm not saying we're not to pray for the return of Jesus Christ. And I'm not saying we're to, not to pray for the end of wickedness. But the way that we view them, the way that we view the sinners of this world is not the way that God wants us to. He wants us to view them with compassion. He wants us to view them with grace. He wants us to view them with love and with hope that just as you and I have been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ, guess what? That can happen to them too. Because we'd be in the same place if not for what we celebrated today. In the same place. We're not better, we're saved. 
And the church has to get a handle on that. Because if we keep preaching condemnation, then, then what's the point? If we're not preaching the gospel, if we're not preaching grace, what is this all about? Because that's what brought us here, and that's what's going to bring them here too. But we look at them and we say they're evildoers. Judge them, hand them over, take care of them. I was listening to a uh, sermon this past week. Just so happens that it fits perfectly into this message. And, and, and I'll listen to WBCI or the, the sermons. And this guy gets on, and I, he had said something that caught my attention. And then I listened to one of his other sermons, and I was appalled. I was appalled that, that a pastor, a preacher of a church that is, has grace in the name of the church was saying things like, Hey, if your church has contemporary music, you've apostatized. You've, you've left the faith, the faith if you like contemporary music. Hey, if you send your kids to public school, you've handed them over into the hands of Satan. Laws, rules. And what does that do to the people listening to that message? It shames them, doesn't it? It makes them feel guilty. And every time someone in that congregation turns on a contemporary song, whatever it may be, and they listen to that song, and in their head they're thinking, oh, my pastor says it's wrong, it's sinful. And they feel what? Guilty. And it becomes a work-related religion. Oh, I'm not listening to contemporary music. I'm holy. You're not because you are. It's absolutely insane and it is absolutely antithetical to the gospel of grace. Moralism hates grace. The two can't survive. And just like the Pharisee in the parable, the Pharisee and the tax collector, there the moralist is, and he's praying, and he's saying, oh, Lord, I'm so thankful I'm not like that guy. Lord, look at me. I do all of this stuff. Look at him. He's a sinner. And because of that, we set up these divisions and a church that is a moralistic church is a divided church between us and them. The ones who follow the law, the ones who are righteous, and the ones who don't. And not only that, a church divides itself from the world, and, and we are in different respects. However, we say, God, look at us and look at them. God, judge them, have favor on us. But most of all, Moralism divides us from Jesus Christ because the two can't exist. 
moralism is about law, righteousness derived from following the law. Jesus Christ is a righteousness that is founded in Him and through grace, through faith alone. The two can't be friends. Newsweek, Rabbi Jacob Neusner writes about how he would respond to Jesus had he met him personally 2,000 years ago. He says, I can see myself not only meeting and arguing with Jesus, challenging him on the basis of our shared Torah, the Scriptures, the Christians would later adopt as the Old Testament, I can also imagine myself saying, friend, you go your way, I'll go mine. I wish you well without me. Yours is not the Torah of Moses, and all I have from God is all I'll ever need from Him is the one Torah of Moses. We would meet, we would argue, and we would part as friends, but we would part. He would have gone his way and I would have gone my way back to my home, my wife and my children, back to my duties and my responsibilities. He says, Christianity beginning with Jesus Christ, I believe, took a wrong turn. Took a wrong turn. He's right though. The two can't be friends. If you choose your own self-righteousness, if you reject the righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ, you are actually rejecting the only cure for moralism because Jesus' crucifixion is the cure for our moralism. The irony reaches its peak right here. Listen to what happens. So Pilate said to them, "'Take him yourselves and judge him according to your own law.'" The Jews said to him, we are not permitted to put anyone to death to fulfill the word of Jesus, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. They needed Jesus Christ to die on a cross. Why? Because they wanted everyone to see that he was what? Accursed of God. Guess what? That was God's plan all along because Jesus' death on the cross redeems us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Amen? No longer under the law. And moralism played a part in providing its own cure. Here they were trying to stop God. They're actually used as pawns to fulfill His plan for them. For them. The word in which Jesus spoke is the word that we looked at earlier in John. And when I am lifted up from earth, I will what? Draw all people to myself, moralists, self-righteous people included, folks. The work that we celebrated here is the only work we need. Never, ever, ever, ever are we to 
derive our righteousness from anything else other than the work and person of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. It's an imputed righteousness. It's not my righteousness, it's His righteousness. And it is that righteousness and that righteousness alone that goes on my resume. No other work, nothing except the work of Jesus Christ. Moralism, legalism, self-righteousness is all about do's and don'ts. Christianity is all about done. The gospel says the work is done. And far from bringing hurt to individuals, the church is to bring healing, grace, compassion, and love. I hope that we always remember that. And I hope if we start seeing symptoms of this disease, that we take care of it very, very quickly. Father, thank you for the righteousness that we have in Christ. Thank you for his work on the cross. Lord, I know that I do it. And I know that folks in here do it. We sometimes trust in our own works, our own doings. Forgive us for that. Help us to rely on your grace and help us to rely on the work of Jesus Christ alone. May the glory not go to us. May the glory go to him. And may this be the gospel that we preach in a world that needs it. And Lord, we ask you, as you have had mercy on us, we ask you to have mercy on this world right now. And may we be vessels of that mercy, proclaiming this truth to all we meet. We praise you and love you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.